This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The guest speaker is featured on this message. So could we welcome uh, Doug Hayes this morning as he comes to Grace Church? Good morning. But it is, it is wonderful to be here with you and, uh, and to bring greetings as well on behalf of the pastoral team, on behalf of the church at Covenant Fellowship Church just outside the city of Brotherly Love. Um, it is a joy to partner with you in the gospel through Sovereign Grace and, and to, uh, to tell you a little bit about what we're doing in the area of mercy ministries, especially in, in terms of, and, and Craig put it very well, in terms of caring for orphans and widows and their affliction in partnership with God's people on the ground uh, in some areas of, of desperate need in the world. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that uh, as we continue, but I love to begin in God's Word. I love being in churches where uh, it's important to begin in God's Word. You know, this is a, this is a value in our culture, and that's a good thing, um, that, that uh, despite where we are as a society, despite where we are as a culture, there are still uh, these vestiges of God's common grace. We understand that it's good to give toward orphans and widows and their affliction, um, but there are some important uh, foundations in God's word that it's also um, important for us to reflect upon as Christians. So if you, if you would, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. It's the Apostle Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy, and he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. Father, how good you've been to us in giving us your word, Lord. How good you have been to us in revealing yourself uh, to us through your word, Lord, for opening our eyes to the truth of your gospel, for bringing us into your family as adopted sons and daughters and giving us the words of life. Lord, we are grateful for that. We're grateful for that in a, in a special way uh, during this season when we celebrate the word made flesh and, and the way you've revealed yourself, not only through your written word, but through your son. And Lord, we are uh, grateful for that. We are eager to reflect upon what that means for our lives as his disciples. So Lord, give us grace now as we, as we turn to your word. Uh, Lord, give us grace to understand, give us grace to, uh, to, to see what you're calling us to do and be as, the, as disciples of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I wanna begin this morning with a little bit of, uh, a little bit of free association. Uh, when I say the word rich or the phrase the rich, what are some of the names and faces that immediately come to mind? You can go ahead and call out one or two. Ross Perot, wow, we're in Texas, all right. That, I, I don't, now, uh, I don't usually get that one. Um, Ross Perot, that's very good, that's very good. I, I don't have Ross's uh, current net worth uh, in my notes, but I've got a few others. Any other names and faces come to mind? 
Bill Gates, of course. Bill Gates, last I checked, he may be worth more than this by now, although I don't know how much oil he owned. Um, last time I checked, Bill Gates was worth $76 billion. Um, Warren Buffett is another common one that, that uh, gets called out. Warren Buffett, $59 billion uh, is his net worth. But maybe you're not so much of a, um, maybe you're not so much of a business and investing uh, guru. Maybe you're more of a sports fan. And, and you know, oftentimes, these are the names and faces that come to mind. Kobe Bryant made $30.5 million dollars last year alone to recover for injury, from injuries for the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, Clayton, Ker uh, Clayton Kershaw is one of my favorites to reference now. You know Clayton Kershaw, the starting pitcher for the LA Dodgers, signed a contract worth $30.7 million per year. Um, starting pitchers play about every fifth game. So uh, I checked his stats this last year. He started 27 games, so he earned a little more than a million dollars per start. Uh, about $155,000 per inning pitched. Uh, and, and believe it or not, I went all the way down to per pitch. $11,278.47 per pitch. Now, if you're like me, when you hear the phrase, the rich, you don't necessarily think of yourself. You think, how many pitches does Clayton Kershaw have to throw before he's exceeded my annual salary? If he gets into any trouble at all on the first batter he's facing in the year, he'll probably exceed my salary on his, on his first batter. Uh, we don't tend to think of ourselves as the rich, do we? we and, and that's an understandable perspective, but that's because I think we often compare ourselves to the super rich. By global standards, I would venture to say that between 99 and 100% of us assembled in this room today should think of ourselves as the rich of this present age. Um, there's been a lot of talk in our, in our country the last few years uh, over the 1% and the 99%. Um, on, and, and most of that conversation has taken place in terms of annual income. Um, if you earn more than $50,000 a year, you're wealthier than 99% uh, of the world's population. So there's the, there's the top 1%, $50,000 a year. Now, we all know, though, that, that the income doesn't tell the whole story, right? Because you can earn $50,000 in middle America and, and, and achieve a very comfortable lifestyle with that if you're in 55 uh, $50,000 in, in Manhattan, you can probably afford a studio apartment and maybe lunch once a week or something like that. So uh, the, the standard of living is a better measure in, in my opinion. So let me give you a couple of categories and just ask you to, to think about where you fall in these categories. The first one, if you have sufficient food, decent clothes, live in a house or apartment that keeps the weather out, and own a reasonably, reasonably reliable means of transportation, you're among the top 15% of the world's wealthy. Now, if you have any money saved, that's any money, a savings account, a retirement account, a, a checking account that tends to have a balance, um, any money saved, a hobby that requires some equipment or supplies, a variety of clothes in your closet, two cars in any condition, and live in your own home, you're among approximately the top 5% of the world's wealthy. Now, I'm not gonna do this, but if I was to ask everyone who, who found themselves, or if you're a student, your family, found your family somewhere in those, uh, in those two categories, I suspect that most hands in the room would go up. And it wouldn't be difficult to, to broaden out the criteria just a little bit so that every hand would go up. Uh, for example, 99% of, of those living below the poverty line in America have running water, electricity, flush toilets, and a refrigerator. 
I would guess 100% of us in this room have those things, yet in many developing countries around the world, these things that we consider so basic to our way of life are really only enjoyed by the smallest wealthy minority. So virtually all of us fall in the, world's, uh, in the top five to 15% of the world's wealthy or higher. We are the rich of this present age. We enjoy a standard of living that Paul could not have even fathomed as he penned uh, this letter to Timothy in the first century, and, and frankly, that, that many of our brothers and sisters around the world today could not fathom either. Now, I wanna just pause here for a moment because I think already some of us are starting to feel guilty, and I want to be explicit that I am not uh, I'm not intending to, to sling guilt around the room. I think sometimes people in my position are all too good at doing that, and, and we've been conditioned in some ways to feel guilty for these things. I think it'll become clear as we, as we enter into God's word that that's not a biblical perspective on wealth. My point, though, is simply this. We are being addressed directly by this text this morning. When we see those words, the rich of this present age, we should think of ourselves and recognize that the Lord is addressing us. Now, as we begin to take a closer look at the text, I wanna make a, a, an observation, a very simple observation, but an observation that really had a powerful impact on me when I first recognized it. Um, that's simply this. Paul's concern here is not for the needs of the poor. Maybe you came to church today and you knew I'd be your guest speaker and, and, or maybe you saw the display in the back when you came in and you thought, okay, today I'm gonna hear a message on God's concern for the poor. Now, there are dozens of scriptures that we could go to about God's concern for the poor, but this is not one of them. This passage is about God's concern for the rich. And he doesn't say, as for the rich of this present age, remind them that they're living in a world filled with crushing need. They're living in a world where children lack the basic necessities of life and for just a dollar a day they can. Nowhere in this text do we hear an appeal based on the needs of the poor. It's implied perhaps in the phrase, be generous and ready to share. In other words, there are, there are those whose needs that are plenty is meant to supply. But the explicit concern here is not for the needs of the poor. It's for the souls of the rich. So God is addressing us, and he's addressing us specifically about the potential effect of riches upon our own souls. So now that we're on the edge of our seats and we're recognizing that the Lord is addressing us directly, let's ask the question, what can we learn about wealth and the proper handling of wealth through this passage? I have three very simple points. Number one, wealth is a good gift from God, given generously for our enjoyment. Wealth is a good gift from God, given generously for our, our enjoyment. Now Paul's dealing with some false teachings in this letter, and one of them appears to be an early manifestation of the prosperity gospel. Uh, just above our text in verse five, he addresses false teachers who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And it's obvious that he's referring to uh, material gain in there because he refutes these false teachings in terms of material things. If we have food and clothes with these, we will be content. So in the larger context, we're in the midst of, of a sober warning about the perils of riches. Just after uh, those comments, Paul goes on to explain, ex express his grave concern for those who desire to be rich and love money. 
But don't you love the Apostle Paul, and don't you love the way Scripture doesn't always give us these easy black and white answers? We're called to live in the tension of appreciating uh, the good gift of God in wealth and also to be careful about the perils of wealth. He doesn't say, Timothy, command the rich to exchange their materialism for asceticism. Charge the rich to renounce their riches and take a vow of poverty for the glory of God. Now, even in the midst of this stern warning, he affirms the fact that it's possible to be a rich Christian. Did you notice the, the, the wonderful passing comment that he makes at the end of verse 17 where he says that God has richly provided us with everything to enjoy? He refuses to call the blessing of God a curse simply because it's been abused by so many and misrepresented by false teachers. Wealth is fundamentally a blessing from God meant for our enjoyment. Mature disciples should not feel guilty for the mere fact that they are wealthy or have been born into a wealthy country, but rather should enjoy the blessings of God to his glory. It's not a Christian virtue to feel ashamed of wealth, provided that it's not ill-gotten gain, provided that it's not hoarded and used self-indulgently. So whether you were born into prosperity or whether you've worked hard and experienced the good fruits of your labors, and let's be honest, for most of us, it's, it's a little bit of both. Scripture affirms that material wealth is a blessing from God to be enjoyed by his people. Rich, rich Christians are enjoy, encouraged to enjoy the abundance that God has provided to his glory. Now, that is reason to rejoice. And if you are going to have a party based on point number one, I, I hope you'll put me on the invitation list. Um, but let's continue on because our charge doesn't end there. Point number two, wealth is a blessing that comes with a warning label. Wealth is a blessing that comes with a warning label. The fact that material riches are a blessing from God to be enjoyed for his glory is not a license for self-indulgence. This is that tension that we're called to live in, enjoying the good gifts of God, yet not using them self-indulgently, not placing our hope in those things. We need to recognize, as I just alluded to, that, that Paul's affirmation of the blessings of wealth is given in the midst of some very sober warnings about the potential dangers of wealth. I mentioned earlier Paul's concern, uh, beginning in verse 9, for those who desire to be rich. He warns that it's a snare, it's a trap, and that, that's a helpful image for us. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a trapper, um, I, th I think you'll understand this image very well. What do snares do? What do traps do? They lure us in, right? They catch us unaware, and then to use biblical language, they plunge us into ruin and destruction. This is powerfully illustrated by the true story of a couple of miners in the Klondike Gold Rush of the late 1800s. I, I got this illustration from Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. He says, after striking a large deposit of gold, these two miners were so excited about unearthing more and more gold each day that they neglected to store up provisions for winter. Now, are you aware of where the Klondike region is, where the Klondike Gold Rush took place? That's Western Canada bordering into Alaskan territory. So winter's no joke there. There's a reason we put our Klondike bars in the freezer. Um, <laughs> they neglected to store up provisions for winter. Then the first blizzard came. Nearly frozen, one of them wrote a note explaining their foolishness, then lay down, lay down to die, having come to his senses too late. Months later, a prospecting party discovered the note 
and their frozen bodies lying on top of a large pile of gold. It's a snare. It's a trap. Those who desire to be rich fall into a snare. And it's through this craving for money, Paul says in verse 10, that some have even wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is graphic language, could be literally interpreted, impaled themselves with many griefs. And all of us could probably pause right now for a moment and think of friends, think of loved ones, perhaps even think of ourselves at some point in our own lives who've plunged themselves into ruin and destruction in the all-out pursuit of riches. Those who desire to be rich fall into a snare. Now back down to our text for this morning, in verse 17, we're told that riches can lead to haughtiness or arrogance, literally exalted thoughts about ourselves. We can be set, we can be prone to set our hope in riches instead of in God. This immediately brings to mind Proverbs verse 38, uh, Proverbs 30 verse 8 uh, to me, give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is God? Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? That, that is a picture of someone arrogantly saying to the Lord, I have everything I need right here. My hope is in these things that I've amassed for myself. What, do, what need do I have of you? Who are you again, by the way? There are those who have wandered away from the faith due to the love of money. Now, if, if you're here today, Uh, Praise God, you're probably not one of them, but all of us need to heed these warnings of Scripture. It is easy to lose touch with the reality of our dependence upon God because of our wealth, isn't it? Let me me ask you, I don't know whether uh, most of you are tithers or or not tithers. Um, I believe there are legitimate perspectives on that that Christians can take, but minimally tithing, whether it's a binding law for New Testament Christians, is certainly a, a helpful guideline. And so many Christians at least consider 10% that they would give, that they would set that apart for the Lord. Now let me ask you, um, whether you are a tither or not, what do you believe about that 90%? Is the 10% belong to the Lord and then the 90% is yours to do as you please with? Uh, Or would you consider yourself a steward of all of God's abundant supply? Now, I think all of us know what the right answer is to that question. If you've been a Christian for more than 15 minutes, you know that you're not the owner of what God has given you. God owns everything. God is the owner of the earth and, and everything in it. Um, but it's easy. Let's just acknowledge it's easy to slide into an ownership mentality on our wealth, isn't it? Um, how do you know if you've slidden into an ownership mentality with your wealth? Gauge your reaction when it's taken away. Gauge your reaction when that big home repair bill comes or that big car repair bill comes that you weren't expecting. Um, Perhaps even more tellingly, gauge your reaction when the Holy Spirit moves upon you to give it away. Um, If if those things uh, cause you to kick and scream, perhaps you're trying to own what the Lord has called you to steward. Perhaps you've set your hope to some degree in the uncertainty of riches instead of in God. Jesus warned in a similar way about the lure of riches and the danger they can be to our spiritual health. Watch out, he said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm, I'm convinced that we, as the rich of this present age, need to take these warnings very seriously, and at times I'm concerned that we don't take them seriously enough. At, at times, I believe we're looking for that easy answer. We're not, we don't wanna live in that tension of scripture, and so we come up with inventive interpretations uh, rather than, than really wrestling with what Jesus is saying here. I believe that Jesus is, is using a wild hyperbole, and, and a camel cannot fit through the eye of a needle. He's, he's using a wild hyperbole to say, but for the grace of God, it is impossible, apart from grace, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But for the grace of God, our riches will lead us astray. Uh, I, <clears throat> I'm sorry to break this to you in the Christmas season, but riches, <laughs> riches are not presented as an advantage to us spiritually unless we remain constantly on our guard, reminding ourselves that our lives do not consist in the abundance of our possessions, reminding ourselves that our hope is in God and not in these material things that he's provided, and viewing our wealth as an opportunity to joyfully and generously invest in the kingdom of God. And this leads me directly into my final point. Wealth is not only a blessing from God meant for our enjoyment and a blessing that comes with a warning label, but it also represents an opportunity that we're charged not to miss. Wealth is an opportunity that we're charged or, or challenged not to miss. Now riches are, are first of all an opportunity to glorify God through good works. And Paul engages in a little bit of wordplay here where he says, let them be rich not only materially, but let them be rich in good deeds. Our wealth is an opportunity in so many ways, not only in the fact that we have, uh, we have material provision in abundance of our material needs, but in addition to that, our prosperous standard of living frees up hours and hours of time that no longer have to be used in the pursuit of personal sustenance. Have you ever considered this? Think about this, with, I love using the illustration of a glass of water. Um, each time you go to the tap and fill up a glass of water, it takes you seconds, recognize that there are others around the world who've had to invest hours today to do what you've just done in seconds. Walking, perhaps, to the local uh, water source, which could be, could be a, a matter of feet, it could be a matter of miles. Uh, waiting in line to collect water, carrying it back on their heads, boiling it in order to make it safe to drink, but before they could boil it, someone would have had to have fetched firewood to, to make a fire to be able to boil the water. Now, again, I don't say any of that to make us feel guilty. We should enjoy that glass of water to the glory of God and thank him for his rich provision in our lives. But as we enjoy it, let's also recognize that this blessing and, and thousands of others like it represent an opportunity that's really unprecedented in the history of the world. Our standard of living requires us requires less of our time to be spent in the pursuit of personal sustenance than really any other people in any other time in the history of the world. And again, the Lord is not saying feel guilty for that. The Lord is saying redeem that abundance. Redeem that abundance of money. Redeem that abundance of time to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and ready to share. But let's be honest. This is where we need to heed Jesus' warning, isn't it? To, the, to be on our guard against all kinds of greed. 
our materialistic culture will present us with no lack of opportunities to spend that excess, to spend the excess money, to spend the excess time. Whether our passion is sports or music or cars or fashion or hunting or video games or watching our investment portfolios grow or iPhone 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, where are we, 6-something, six 6-A, six 6-B? Six uh, I know there will be another one next year, and none of the beautiful girls will like you guys if, if you don't have it. That's what I know. Um, these are the things that we're encouraged to spend that abundance on, and, and we'll lack no opportunity to spend it all in pursuit of those things as if that's where we'll find true life. That's what our culture wants to tell us. This is where you'll find life. This is where you'll find fulfillment. But brothers and sisters, we know we know God has shown us where true life is found. A couple of years ago, I was moved to receive a, a letter from an elder saint. Um, we'll call him Dan. And in this letter, Dan told me how he'd recently lost his wife of 61 years. And uh, he just wanted to let me know how meaningful it was for him to sponsor a child and to be able to continue sponsoring a child um, even after his wife's passing. Uh, he told me in the context of that letter that he had canceled his TV service in order to be able to continue doing it. And, and as I read that letter, I just imagined this older man uh, having lost his decades-long companion and, and just recognized that there are millions of people in our world today who, who drown out the loneliness they feel in the constant din of the television. But what Dan was saying was, it's more important to me uh, to make my investment where God has shown me that true life is found. I just want to read you a, a portion of that letter where Dan said, canceling my television and giving this money to support a child is one of the best things I ever did. It makes me feel glad I can do this. I don't miss my TV at all. I just want to say this, this is a fragrant offering to the Lord, folks. This is a fragrant offering that says to the Lord, you have shown me where true life is found, and I'm gonna make my investment there. Well, what a pleasure it was for me to write back to Dan and to tell him that I believe he'll be greatly rewarded in heaven, greatly rewarded far beyond the, the recognition that he already has that this is one of the best things he's ever done. And the Lord reminds us here in our text as well that wealth is an opportunity not only to glorify him through good works, but in so doing to store up treasure for ourselves. Read with me again, beginning in verse 18. There to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, in other words, as a result of their generosity and readiness to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, don't miss the contrast here between verse 10 above and verse 19 in terms of what we might do for ourselves with our riches. Will the love of riches lead us to impale ourselves with many griefs? Or will the generous stewardship of riches lead us to store up for our tr ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy, where thieves will not break in and steal? By God's grace, I believe the latter will be true of us as we choose to be rich in good deeds instead of treasuring the things of this world, as we choose generosity toward others instead of self-indulgence. Um, and and I, this is one of the burdens I carry here is to, 
is to, to help all of us, myself included, recognize that the Lord is not trying to lay a burdensome command on us here. He's not trying to take from us. He's trying to give to us. He's calling us to exchange the perishable for the imperishable. And through these choices to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and ready to share, we're also said to be taking hold of that which is truly life. Now, now you might say, well, wait a minute. What does that mean? Does, does that mean we earn our salvation through our generous stewardship of wealth? No, absolutely not. Salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. If there is anyone here who is thinking that, that you could earn God's favor through generous stewardship of wealth or, or any other good thing that you may do, the scripture teaches clearly that the only way to come to salvation uh, in God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus has come to bear this, our sins on the cross and to give us his perfect righteousness as our record before God so that we can stand before God pure and clean. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation from the Lord. But consider this with me, folks. Who is this one? Who is this one that we've been called to place our faith in? Who is this one that we are de- in whom we are declaring that life is truly found? We're declaring that life is truly found in the one who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. We're declaring that life is truly found in the one who, though he was God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but humbled himself, taking the very nature of a servant and, and embracing death for us, even death on a cross. Wrapped up in this gospel truth that we treasure uh, is the essence of, of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We, it's the essence of what we as his body are maturing into as we grow into him who is our head. And if this truth, this gospel truth that we so adore, if this truth has penetrated our hearts, it will penetrate, it must penetrate, and we want it to penetrate every aspect of our lives, including the stewardship of the wealth that he's provided. So what am I driving at, and how does this relate to Covenant Mercies as I, as I turn the corner to beginning to tell you about our ministry? Um, simply this, Covenant Mercies does not exist merely to meet the needs of the poor. Covenant mercies exist for you. Covenant mercies exist for me, uh, for us, the rich of this present age, to equip us to pass the test of prosperity, to give us opportunities to be rich in good deeds, generous and ready to share, to help us take hold of that which is truly life, now, Paul's writing this letter to young Pastor Timothy, so let me speak to you in terms of my pastoral concern, both for my church, but even for all of us in the, in the family of, of Sovereign Grace churches. Um, if I can kind of make an artificial distinction, as a missions pastor, uh, my concern is for the lost. My concern is for the strengthening of the local churches that we work with in, in different parts of the world, that they might be a true reflection of the love and mercy of Jesus Christ in their communities. Absolutely, there's a, a missional concern. Uh, as a discipleship pastor, again, this is kind of an artificial distinction, but just to bring it closer to home in terms of making disciples in my home church and, and, and calling all all of us to be faithful stewards of what God has provided. My concern is for us, 
for you, for me, that we might remain ever vigilant to be faithful stewards of the wealth that God has richly provided. That we might be disciples of Jesus and, and not disciples of our culture in this regard. That we might set our hope uh, not in the uncertainty of riches, but in God. And that we might be generous and ready to share with our brothers and sisters in need. Though the lure of materialism would seek to stunt our growth as disciples and plunge us into ruin and destruction, the glorious gospel that we've staked our lives upon is not only good news for the poor, it's good news for the rich. Father, we are grateful people, Lord. You have shown us where life is truly found. We're grateful that you've called us into your family. We're grateful that you've shown us through your word who you are and who you're calling us to be. And Lord, even as we celebrate your incarnation in this Christmas season, Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in us and mature us into everything, uh, everything that you've called us to be in Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we thank Doug? You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.